Church, would you please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word? Tonight our passage is Luke 22, 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, Well, you also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Well, certainly this man also was with him, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Well, good evening. I was asked a little earlier, um, was I nervous? And uh, the answer was yes. Uh, even though I have made a living standing in front of captive audiences for my past 30 plus years of being in education, there's never been a day, whether it was with kindergartners or whether it was college students teaching at AUM, that I didn't stand before each class with a little bit of fear and trembling. Simply because James 3.1 tells us, says, that all of us should desire to be teachers because teachers are held to a stricter standard. Okay? Because we have the power to sway and we have the power to plant seeds. And it's so important to make sure those seeds are planted and the right seeds are planted. So I never stand up without acknowledging that to God and saying, hey, it's you. I need you to come. I'll be the vessel. You send the Holy Spirit. We'll do it together. And so hopefully that nervousness usually goes away in the first 25 or 30 minutes or so. So if it, if it hasn't faded by the end, I'll get Chris to come up and, and help out for myself. So. so the second part of that is you're going to see tonight um, as a teacher, uh, I love visual aids. And so I have a PowerPoint slide for you tonight. You know, one of those reasons is, especially at the college level, when I taught there for a number of years, I told the students, I said, I know you don't want to stand here looking at me for 75 minutes while I lecture, but if I put PowerPoints up, then there's something for you to look at and for you to take your eyes off. Other reason for that is, is that research tells us that we remember about 10% of the things that we read. And we remember about 20, 25% of those things that we hear and about 30, 35% of those things that we see. And then all of a sudden, we remember about 50% of the things that we hear and see together, and boy, it jumps up to about 75% when we not only hear it and see it, but we say it 
and we write it. And that's so important because that's how we process. And so when I can put stuff up and you can see it, hopefully something along this way will make a little bit of sense. You can see I have a little subtitle down there. The title of the night is Failure is Our Friend. The subtitle is Learning to Make Some Great Lemonade. Because if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Okay, you make lemonade. And so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. We're going to try to look at this idea of failure and understand that failure is our friend. Sunday, Chris preached that failure is an option. Okay, and it is. We, we have that opportunity every day to make choices and try to figure things out and get things to where they need to be so that we make the correct choices and we don't fail. Okay? And so here tonight, our scripture is Peter. Oh my goodness, good old Peter. So um, it's, you know, one of those things where we're going to look into him, but he, he made an art out of failing at times, you know. But Chris, before we get there, there was a college student that he needed one more class to have a full-time semester. So he asked his buddy, he said, hey, I need a class. Without hesitation, his buddy said, Theology 101. He said, man, are you crazy? I need a class that I can pass. He goes, you don't understand. Same professor has been teaching this class for 20 years. He gives the same lectures for 20 years. He's given the same notes for 20 years. And the test is a final exam at the end of the semester with one question. And it's been the same question for 20 years. Describe in detail Paul's trip to Carnath. So the young man signs up for the class, takes it, goes in, true to the word. Lectures are the same. Notes are the same. Comes day for the final, everybody has went in and studied. They all know Paul's trip to Corinth like the back of their hand. Professor walks in that morning, grabs his chalk, turns around, starts writing on the board. He says, critique Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and there is a hush that falls over the classroom. Stunned silence. People just start writing their name on their paper and taking it up and turning it in. Except the one little man's over there scribbling, doing a little bit of writing. This professor required all the students to come back the next day and pick up their final exams and get their grades. And so sure enough, they show up and everybody's grabbing their paper. They knew zero, failed, zero. Except the one young man, he's sitting there beaming. And he looks down and he says, 100, A plus. And his buddy is mad. He goes, wait, you did the same thing. You studied the same thing as us. How did you get 100? And he snatched the paper out of his hand and he began to read. And the young man had written, far be it for me to criticize the greatest teacher who's ever walked the face of the earth. <laughs> but while we're on the subject, let me tell you about Paul's trip to Corinth. Okay? So he took his failure at the moment and turned it into something good. Right? And I think Peter gives us a great example of that. I had to laugh when, when Chris first uh, sent me the text and said, okay, how about this date and here's your scripture. And because I have this wonderful relationship with Peter. Um, when I was uh, in school at AUM before I ever made it to Fraser, I was heavily involved in the Baptist Student Union out there. And the, uh, the director at that time, Reverend Ken May, brought the leadership together and he says, hey, I want to help y'all understand who you are and your growth. So we're going to take a DISC test, you know, the D-I-S-C, except this one is biblically based. And when you get your answer, it's going to tell you what biblical character you are most like. So, Young in my faith, I'm sitting there thinking like, who do I want to be like? Oh, Paul was the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. 
David was a man after God's own heart. Even in his struggles later in his life, he still was a man after God's own heart. I shall not want. I get my test back. Peter. Wait, Peter denied Christ. I don't want to be like Peter. Peter's got foot and mouth disease. Every time you turn around, he's running and just... And so, I didn't really buy into it. I just kind of said, yeah, I'll, you know, not going to worry about Peter. Fast forward a few years. Now we're at Emmett Fraser. Marcella, my wife and I are heavily involved in the singles ministry at that time, you know, not as a couple, but just in leadership. And we brought all the leadership together again and gave the same test. And I thought, surely by now I have matured. No, still Peter. So by now I'm smart enough, at least I think I am, to start studying and looking at Peter a little bit and trying to figure this out. Okay, is being like Peter such a bad thing? Christotus on Sunday, he used the scripture of Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. That was point number three. And his point number three was Jesus prays that our failure will help others. And it was when I started looking at the failure as an opportunity. When it, when it, dawned on me that, wait, we learn from our failure if we're wise. I, I taught my students for years, there's three types of people in the world. There's dumb, smart, and wise. Dumb people never learn from their mistakes. Smart people learn from their mistakes. And wise people learn from other people's mistakes. And so I started looking, trying to figure it out. You know, what, 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 how, how does failure help me? How does it do? In college, I took a sign language class. On my very first test, I missed two words. I missed hope and I missed wonder. That's the two signs. Hope, I'm here, and I hope and aspire to be here. And wonder is like awe and wonder out there in front of you. I will never forget those two words again in my life. Because I missed them on a test. They're now ingrained in me. So it is when we take our failure and we use it to bring glory to the kingdom, that makes maybe a little bit better sense that failure is our friend. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, I'll translate it for you. Everything you're going through is because really, really soon, God's going to cross your path with somebody who needs your wisdom who needs that understanding. It's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Okay? Both of my parents have passed away. If you've lost parents, you can empathize with me. If you have not lost a parent, you can only sympathize with me. Because you don't know the absence of a mother's love yet or the father's wisdom, whatever it might be. And that's why we go through. It's what Paul tells us right here. You're going through it 
So if you make that mistake of looking up and going, why? Now you know. Because what God wants us to do is take these failures, learn from them, because this is how we pass it on. Charlie Peacock, who is a contemporary Christian artist, has a song called Experience. And this is one of the lines from the song. It says, we can only possess what we've experienced. Think about it. You might go see something and see a movie or read a book. But until you've been in a situation or been there, it's hard to convey that to somebody else what it's like. And sometimes it's even harder if we've been in the midst of it. But when we possess it because we've experienced it, usually it's easy to give away. It's something that we can hand right on down to those. And that's why we embrace this idea that you know, we fail. Then all of a sudden failure starts looking a little different. Some of us fail Sunday morning. Come in and heard Chris preach a good, powerful message about turning and repentance and restor restoration. And we failed before we got out of the parking lot because of the traffic. Yeah. Stepping on my own toes, so, you know, if, if I did yours too, it's one of those things. It's with us every day. It's inevitable. So it only makes sense for us to embrace it and for it to become our friends. Part of our scripture tonight, Luke 22, 60 and 62 says, but Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while we were still speaking, the rooster crowed. Ah, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had uh, said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And A.W. Tozier, great American pastor, theologian, evangelist said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I had that written on a piece of paper on the visor of my car for years. It was written in highlighter. And it stayed on the visor of my car until the highlighter faded so that I could no longer see it. And it just so happened that was about the time that God was through with me and teaching me that lesson where I learned this, uh, this quote. This is the part of the thing where when I started to embrace Peter, I had never read this part that Jesus turned and looked at him. I mean, it would be one thing enough to deny him, but then the very man that just minutes earlier you had stood there and boldly said, I will never, I will die with you. I, and he looked at you. And then it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's my question for Peter. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You know, when you get to heaven, I want to go ask so-and-so this question. I want to go ask so-and-so this question. What was it like? You know, Noah, how many times did you hit your hammer, hit thumb with a hammer? Okay, yeah. Peter, what happened? Because it happened. He changed. He went out and wept bitterly. And maybe for the first time, Peter was truly repentant and remorseful for his decisions and his actions. But we can't look bad about Peter. 
Okay, what we have to do is look at Peter's personality. And just real quickly, you can see I've got stuff here. This is the DISC test. If you've never seen it, it's a personality test and it breaks it down into four parts. The D is dominance, I is influence, S is steady, and C is compliant. Peter is a high ID, okay? And, and IDs, um, uh, in, in, for him, high IDs are action-oriented, great communicators, love to tell stories, fun-loving, but high eyes are impulsive. Sound like Peter? Think so. Best way to tell an impulsive person, teachers in, in, in the house, you know that person. It was that child that every time you asked a question, ooh, 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 I know. Or it was that child that you had, Chris, raise your hand and wait till you're called on before you answer. Okay? That's that high eye. It's an impulsive nature. So, was Peter impulsive? You bet. Because when Jesus said, hey, who's everybody say I am? Oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say the prophets, but who do you say I am? Oh, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one, you're the chosen one. Peter was first to blurt it out. Jesus said, hey, I got to die. <laughs> and Peter pulled him aside and said, no, not on my watch, Lord. You're not doing that. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water when he saw Jesus walking. And Jesus said, come. And Peter, boom, took off. See, I always believe and always talk about it there. I don't believe that Peter walked up and grabbed the edge of the boat and, you know, did this. Peter was impulsive. Peter hit that rail. Both feet went over at the same time, hit the water, and was gone. And went out. So we can see, when I got a couple of more to masters, on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the presence of God, Peter's like, hey, let's build some houses and just live here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? His impulsive nature, he pulls a sword out, cuts off Malchus's ear. That's Peter. Okay. Why is that important to know? Because it's important that we know who we are. Okay. Hopefully at this point in time, you have studied Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and studied the gifts of the Spirit, and you know your heart gift and you know your ministry gifts and you know how your personality works. Because I think they go hand in hand. It's, it's hard. It's hard to do ministry. You've been in that awkward situation before where somebody's come up and said, oh man, why aren't you over here helping us? This is a great ministry. You won't believe what God's doing in this work. And we stand there like, because we don't know how to answer. When it's sometimes pretty easy, it's like, okay, my strength is prayer. So guess what? I'm going to start by praying for you. And I'm going to pray that if this is a place that I'm supposed to be involved, then I will come get involved. But when you know your strengths, it's easy to help other people and know who we are. And so we have to put that together. I want you to notice about Peter, though, as we look at all these moments, okay? The good thing about this is, is that Jesus always instructs Peter in these moments, okay? You would think that he might get tired of it. And this is why failure for us sometimes, I truly believe, is those moments where Satan tries to get in our ear and whisper and go, I can't believe you have the audacity to go before the Lord again, asking for forgiveness for this sin of this failure of whatever you want to call it that you've just committed for the 412th time. 
And we start listening to that lie. And then we start believing that somehow God's grace is not sufficient enough for our sins. Everybody else's, but not ours. But that's not how he works. Jesus was always faithful to instruct. And you can see sometimes he even disciplines or corrects Peter. But the beauty of it is he never rejects it. He's got ample opportunity. When he turned and looked at Peter in the courtyard, you know, he could have given one of those, done with you. I, I told you you were going to do it, and you still didn't have enough in you to not do it. That's not what he did. Jesus is always calling Peter into a deeper understanding. Because with understanding comes application. And that's important. See, if we take 2 Timothy 2.15 to heart, study and do your best to present yourself to God approved, a workman tested by trial, who has no reason to be ashamed, accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. And that's from the Amplified Version, so it gives you a little bit more there to hold on to. Okay? And I say down there that application is important. I don't know how familiar you with, if you've ever even seen it, uh, but this is Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning. It's a learning theory in education uh, that I aspire to and I've taught for years and years. The knowledge base is the bottom. Knowledge is the fact that you know something. Like if I ask you right now, raise your hand in this room if you know an airplane can fly. I'm almost certain that every hand would go up. Now, when it comes to understanding, if I said, now raise your hand if you can explain to me how an airplane flies. There's a difference there. We all know it flies, okay? But understanding, you know, thrust and lift and drag and everything that goes with it, and if we know it enough, if you understand it enough, then I can hand you a piece of paper and say, make me an airplane that'll fly across the room. That's application. That's what we're supposed to do with Scripture. At least the way I've been taught it. That's the way that Dr. Andy Harris has beat it into my head for the past 30-some years. Okay? Does it seem no good if we don't apply it or know how to apply it? And that's why Tim, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, so that we can accurately handle and skillfully teach the word of truth. That's what it's all about. It's getting to that application point. We're coming up on the end of a year-long journey to eradicate biblical illiteracy. Learning about Jesus and his life. And it's not just to, to, to learn it. Hopefully we've been taking it and understand. It goes back to that, hey, what uh, Paul said in, in uh, Corinthians. He said, you're going through this because somebody needs your wisdom. Be ready. Then he comes back and tells Timothy basically the same thing. Study. Be ready. That time's coming. Benjamin Disraeli, who was the prime minister of England in the 19th century, had a quote that said, The key to success in life is for a man or a woman to be ready for their time when it comes. It means to be prepared. Be ready. Because scripture tells us the moment's coming. He says, hey, you're going through this because I got somebody I need to bring to you. And I'm going to be bringing them soon. So it's not just enough for us to know the scripture, 
We've got to understand it, and when we understand it, we can apply it. But we know that, you know, that, that good old verse that we get confused sometimes that all things are good. No, not all things are good, but God can use all things to the good. He can take those broken moments and he can teach us and let us see the good and let us see the bigger picture out of it. We see, Jesus believed in Peter. Got to remember where Peter came from. When he got called, you know, as a disciple, one of the first things he did was what? He changed his name. Yeah? He brought him to, uh, brought him to Jesus and he, uh, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, and translated, Peter. Cephas is the Arabic. Peter is the Greek for rock. Because we know later on there in Matthew, what does Jesus say? I am going to build my church on you, the rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay? Go tell the disciples and Peter. This is after his resurrection. This is after Peter went out and wept bitterly. Okay? That he made a point to specifically let Peter know, I still believe in you. Remember, I told you you were going to do that. And if I was going to give up on you, I would have given up long before that. But I still believe in you. And then we can see in Acts 5.15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they pass by and be healed. So we have Peter at the beginning and Jesus knows who he is and he changes his name and says, you are a rock. And he later tells him, you are such that I believe in you in such a way that I'm going to build my church on you and the gates of hell will not prevail. And Peter becomes so full of the spirit and the power after Pentecost that he looks at a man and says, gold and silver have I none, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he's so powerful that they're now just laying people on the side of the road in hopes that Peter's shadow will fall on them. Now we know in between these two points, Peter's life and his moments look like an, uh, an EKG. Okay, up and down. Sometimes right in the same spot, Mount of Transfiguration, he's standing there in the glory of God and then he puts his foot in his mouth. Let's build a house and just stay here. Keep all this to ourselves. But Peter believed in him. And so what I believe is that Peter teaches us a few things. One, failure is a process. When Peter was walking on water, he took his eyes off Jesus, he stumbled into the water, and Jesus reached out his hand and took him and said, oh, you have a little faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that Peter had walked out on water, fell in the water, but they had to walk back to the boat? Unless Jesus carried him, or unless Jesus made him swim, Peter got to walk back to the boat. He walked on water some more. It wasn't the end. It was just part of the learning process. Failure is reversible. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So as soon as Peter cut off the high priest's servant, Malchus's ear, Jesus stopped him, grabbed the ear, healed it, said no more. Peter's failure didn't mean complete failure for the man. He restored him. Failure is not a stigma. 
Man, if there's ever a stigma that's going to stick with somebody, how about denying Jesus three times after you've been told you're going to do it, and then when you do it, Jesus looks at you as if to say, be ready, I told you. But then after all that, he says, but go, tell the disciples and Peter. It wasn't a scarlet letter that Peter had to wear the rest of his life. Jesus restored him. And certainly failure is not final. Then Peter said, gold and silver I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Because he restored him. He was there for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. Remember, Peter was the one brash and bold saying, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brethren? Seven? And he thought he was being all cute and funny and everything because Jewish law said three. And what Jesus tell him? No, Peter. <laughs> Smart aleck. Seven times 70. 490 times do we forgive our brother. And thank, Peter was probably pretty thankful for that down the road. So let me close out by leaving you with these three thoughts. What we need to remember about our failure. One is that failure might be divinely utilized, might be a divinely utilized opportunity. If we look at Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, 17 through 18, the verse just tells us that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Jesus will use those moments of failure to open your eyes, to see the bigger picture. Those moments might be spiritually focusing opportunities the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. So sometimes the battle in the failure is how we think about it. God always loves you, no matter what. And sometimes it just simply might be a faith-strengthening opportunity. Oh, my goodness, James. Don't you just want to sometimes reach over and just shake James? Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete and an entire lacking in nothing. We're supposed to be joyful in affliction. Failure becomes our friend. So we circle back. We simply circle back to 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. That's why we're going through it. Because if we take the verse in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples. Your failures are just your tools. Your failure is your bait. We're called to be fishers of men. How do you fish? With bait. You can throw an empty hook out there and maybe catch something. But you catch a lot more fish with bait. And what's the bait? Your life. Your experience. Everything that you've been through. Becomes the tools that we need. Because... We all would admit we don't know the scripture enough to have all the answers. But God promises us that, hey, you're going through this 
and I'm going to use you. So be ready. And once again, if we do that, failure becomes our friend. So, let me pray. Father, oh, thank you. Failure is not easy. It's not. Because we just, we want to do right. We want to get things right. We don't want to mess up. We don't want to lead people astray. We don't want to fail you. I think it always comes back to that saying that I heard a long time ago, that obedience is not the act of obeying. It's the willingness to obey. We don't want to fail you, but we know we do. And we just simply ask you to continue to take those moments and strengthen our lives so that we can be ready to fulfill the Great Commission by living out the Great Commandments. And we pray this in your strong and powerful name. Amen.